When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. And a special day like today, we like to engage you, our listeners, on everything that's happening in football that you're talking about. Of course, today is your questions answered. I'm Ian McGarry and joining me as always is Duncan Castles and we have a very, very varied and, and very interesting selection of questions today, Duncan. I'm pleased to say, as always, uh, our listeners um, come up with very interesting, intriguing and intelligent sources of debate for us. We're going to start with Heaven75 at Heaven752 and he asks, Duncan, if Lampard with a transfer ban has a chance to finish above Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Which club has the best chance to break into the top four stroke top six? Leicester, comma, Everton, question mark. I think it's an interesting one this season because um, you you look at how the teams have started. It's I think it's pretty clear it's going to be between Liverpool and Manchester City for the title and probably a substantial distance between those two and third place. Um, you'd expect Tottenham to be third in terms of the, the quality of squad they've got. A uh, bit of a rocky start, um, but uh, on the same number of points as Manchester United and Chelsea at present. Um, Arsenal look stronger than they have been. Um, so then you have competition between, you'd expect, Arsenal, Manchester United and Chelsea for that fourth place. Um, is it possible for one of the other teams to break in to the top six or the top four? The top four, I don't think so. I really can't see Leicester, Everton, and I would say the other obvious candidate, all other things being equal, which they're not in this case, would be Wolves in terms of quality of squad um, to get in amongst the, the traditional big six teams. Um, I don't think they, I don't think any of those are good enough to make it into the top four, to make it into the top six, potentially, um, because you have, you you wonder how far down Manchester United and potentially Chelsea could slip. Um, Manchester United, we've talked a lot about their issues on on this podcast, but just sort of to underline the weaknesses they have in midfield and and attack in terms of depth if they were to get an injury to Paul Pogba or Paul Pogba was decide, decided um, he wasn't going to focus for a chunk of this season. You'd think they'd have serious problems creating goals. Um, and they're already very weak in attack and they're very one-dimensional in attack in that all of their players, all of their attacking players want to um, break into space and play on the counter-attack the team set up that way. Chelsea, I think, have got a better squad. I think the issue with Chelsea is more 
um, they've started the season um, starting every game at a very, very high tempo, creating a lot of chances, pressing the opposition high up the field, getting caught out um, in matches because of that, notably against Manchester United in the first game. But also, I think, getting caught out in the second half of matches, um, you can see the players visibly tiring and they've dropped points that you would expect them to take. Um, I think because the, the tactical instruction, the timing of the tactical instruction is a little bit off at this stage. I would expect Frank Lampard to um, rectify that. It's not, you know, that's not a major thing to have to change and they should be capable of doing that. But again, you're looking at a, an inexperienced squad, more depth than Manchester United, but an inexperienced squad. So there's, there's a few variables there. Um, Everton, I would say, are the weakest of those three contender clubs we've talked about. Um, they have more of a problem in having too deep a squad and, and the kind of issues we talked about when discussing Javi Gracia's exit from Watford and how it makes it harder for a manager when he's got a lot of disgruntled players in the squad because they're not playing regularly. Um, Leicester City, there's continuity there. There's a lot of um, quality players in that team, a lot of quality younger players in that team. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see where Brendan Rodgers can take them. They haven't lost yet. Um, there's an argument that the defence has actually been strengthened by losing Harry Maguire. Now, I talked to someone who knows Leicester City quite well, and he, before the season started, and was asking, what do you think they will be like without Maguire? And he said, well, actually, the best centre-back in the team last season, the most important centre-back was Johnny Evans. wasn't Maguire in terms of organising the defence, the intelligent to be in the right places at the right time. They've promoted um, Kagler Soyuncu, the um, Turkish defender that they signed from Germany a year ago. Um, who, uh, again, people I trust in football in the scouting recruitment sections identified Soyuncu and said this guy is a, a serious talent and will be, does have the ability to become a top Premier League player. He'll need time. But they've got him in the team now and it seems to be working. So if you can build a good partnership there and have the, the younger players in their squad, the creative players in their squad working well, they don't have European football to contend with. Um, so possibly they can make it to the, the top six off the back of that. And I think that's going to be Wolves' handicap, is that they they played with a very shallow squad last season, intentionally. It worked well for them. Um, they've added some quality in the summer, but not as much as I think Nuno would have liked to have added. Uh, and they have this um, the demands of playing Europa League, um, the whole um, qualifying sections of the Europa League already um, so they, they put in far more minutes than anyone else in the Premier League um, at this stage and I think that's going to hold them back from, from building on what they achieved last season in the Premier League and therefore probably excludes them from breaking into the top six this season. Well Leicester of course finished ninth last season but could easily have been higher than that and I do think they have a better quality of squad going into this particular season than they've had both last season, um, and therefore I think they've got a better chance of climbing the table. No one's accused Brendan Rodgers, given his career in management, of being naive. He knew Harry Maguire would, would leave. Um, he knew that from before the season ended. 
and he chose not to replace him. And I would say he did so intentionally. It wasn't a case of running out of time because he generally he was very much aware that Maguire's move to United will would be completed before the transfer window closed. Um, he did look at defensive alternatives in um, Tarkovsky and uh, also at Lewis Dunk at Brighton and decided that, no, he didn't need him. And it's right what you say, Duncan, about promoting um, from below in terms of uh, what they've done. So I, I would say that Leicester are quite happy um, with what they've got and therefore, and as you say, have yet to lose a game in the Premier League. Um, I don't know, they, they're the one team that we can say, evidentially, have broken the mould by winning the title um, with a squad which probably wasn't, uh, in terms of the quality, as good as this one. Now, I don't think, obviously, uh, Leicester City are going to win the Premier League title this season, but I don't see why they can't mount a challenge for top six, top four, if they can get consistency to go with the quality that they have both retained and recruited. Um, so for me, I think Leicester, out of those three, are possibly the, the best bet, if you like, in terms of breaking uh, into that upper echelon. Um, other than that, to address um, Heaven 75's question with regards to Lampard and Chelsea, uh, I am on record in the podcast as saying I believe Chelsea will need to learn on the job. The younger players like Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham, etc., who Frank Lampard has brought in, to his team, never mind the 18-man matchday squad, are players who have had good seasons in the championship, but that doesn't entitle you automatically to believe that you're going to have a great season in the Premier League because it's a huge, huge step up. But I do think that Chelsea have probably the best opportunity in terms of, look, you can say a transfer ban is a handicap or you can turn it to you what you think is your advantage. And I know that um, the coaches at Chelsea have spoken to their players that are there and said, look, you're our guys. This is what we've got. We've got to make the best of it. And therefore, you don't need to worry about us changing um, the staff in terms of the personnel in the, the dressing room because we have a transfer ban. There's been a lot of chat that that ban might be um, overturned for the January window, but I, I know that at Chelsea, they're not talking about that um, at this moment in time. They're focusing on the players they have and achieving results with the players they have. And so far, results have been up and down, that's for sure. Um, they've shown a bit of naivety uh, in defending, and especially, as you say, Duncan, um, maybe a little bit of um, tiredness in the last 15, 20 minutes because of the way that uh, they start the game on the high press and with a very high tempo, and therefore they seem to be unable to defend as well um, in the final third of the game as they do in the first two thirds of the game. However, I don't see that as being a massive disadvantage because they'll learn from that as the season goes on. And I do think that, you know, Chelsea, I'm, I'm not saying they'll make top four, but I do think as the season progresses, Duncan, that they will have more of a say, if you like, in terms of um, where places are and, you know, how positions um, finish in terms of the league table in May. So from... Um, Top four, top six chances, Duncan. We go to Mark Seymour, who is at mseymour84. Mark, thank you very much for your question. This is an interesting one because um, in this day and age of statistical analysis and an obsession, of course, with 
statistical analysis at clubs with regards to um, player recruitment, player performance, and indeed team performance. Um, Mark asks, on the quality of chances created and given away by each team in the XG, which of course is expected goals table, it looks rather different to the actual Premier League table. Do you think this is a true reflection of a team's performances in games? And I'm just going to point out to all our listeners, I'm just going to give you the top six, because obviously we are talking to you rather than explaining this to you uh, in graphic. Manchester City are top of the expected goals table as of the 1st of September. Manchester United are second, Liverpool third, Chelsea fourth. Interestingly, West Ham and Leicester City make up the top six. Um, we always have this debate, Duncan, um, between the stats, uh, uh, you know, lies, lies, damned lies and statistics, compared to evidence, uh, results and actual reality. Um, do you think this is a misrepresentation uh, in terms of how better Manchester United are playing rather than what the results are? Well, I quite like expected goals as a statistic. Um, I don't think it's a, um, a valueless one. And I, you know, I think there are, there are problems with football analytics. Um, and my background in academics was actually related to making, uh, developing statistics to measure behavior. So there's kind of comparisons with that to what people do in football analytics. And some of the, the statistics that are used are quite questionable in how they, they, um, they're generated uh, and whether they're rigorously applied. But expected goals, I think, has a value. I think you've got to ask a few questions, um, though. One, you're doing that after four games, um, and it is, I think, more problematic to use a statistic like expected goals um, after just four games and, and draw big conclusions from it. I think if you do a little research, you'll find that there are various expected goals statistics about, so that which is a result of people calculating them in different manners. So you also have to be careful um, about which XG you use, and and it also that indicates there's a problem, a bit of a problem with the statistic in that different people can come up with different ways of calculating it. And then I think there's this, there's a fundamental issue with expected goals, which is um, uh, there's two, two issues here. One, um, sometimes you can have an expected higher expected goal rate than you deliver on the pitch simply because your strikers aren't very good. Um, what expected goals is telling you is what the average team should score from the position on the pitch and where they had their chances. Now, obviously, if you've got higher quality strikers like Mohamed Salah, Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, um, they will tend to be above their expected goal um, ratios because they're better at finishing. If you have strikers like Marcus Rashford, Anthony Martial, um, and are dependent on them in your team, and you see their own manager talking about there are scorers of great goals rather than um, scorers of great quantities of goals, then maybe it's not that surprising that um, your actual goal return and your actual point return is less than what your expected goal statistic would indicate because your guys aren't as good at finishing from those positions on the field as they should be. Then I think that the other fundamental issue with XG, which is quite often overlooked, is 
it'll tend to deteriorate when you're um, ahead in a game. So if you have a two-goal lead, you actually don't need to rack up XG any further in a match because you can sit back, let the other team come to you, don't really need to push for goals, don't need to create chances, and that will result in your, um, your XG rate declining um, simply because you're in control of a game and aren't chasing um, equalising goals or catch-up goals. And on the other side, if you're behind in a game or you're trying to turn a draw into a win, um, as Manchester United have been, then your XG will tend to go up because you are chasing the game and you are trying to create chances, whether you put them away or not. So I think you've got to bear those elements in mind. Um, and while I think it's a valuable statistic, the idea that you just chuck out the tried and tested who won the games, uh, who scored the most goals um, and who got the points and uh, say, right, we're just going to look at uh, an analytics measure and, and attribute the team who's got the best analytics measure as being the best team in football. Um, it's staff, basically, isn't it? I did have this conversation with the chief analyst at uh, a top six Premier League club who obviously is devoted to such things as expected goals. And um, he did his best to explain to me um, about how they use that statistic, how they um, write the algorithm, and then use the results to judge players and performances um, based on the statistical gathering. And in the end, my response was, <clears throat> I, I'm sorry, but I haven't seen the golden boot for expected goals. So if you want to show me the golden boot for expected goals rather than the golden boot for goals scored, then you know maybe I can take you more seriously. However, I don't think what you're factoring in here is um, a player's personality, his ambition, his hunger. Does he want to go and score more goals? Does he want to um, convert those chances? And uh, also, as you've explained, Duncan, in your answer about how what a team's position in any particular game is in terms of um, increasing or decreasing their attack based on the result that they expect to have, um, I don't see that being incorporated in the algorithm either. And in fact, um, several top professional footballers whom I have spoken to have told me one thing which I always find is incredibly interesting. Um, and you can say it's nonsense. I'm not saying you personally, Duncan, but you know people can diss it if they like. But I'm talking about players who won the Champions League and the Premier League. And they all concur that when the game kicks off, within five minutes, they know what the result's going to be. And that sounds a bit weird. But however, notwithstanding unusual events like own goals or sendings off, etc. Top professionals will tell you they can smell the result of a game within five minutes of the kickoff. So they know if they're going to win, they know if they're going to lose, and they, they can probably decide if it's going to be a draw as well. Now, again, that may sound certainly strange to people, but that's how players operate. So the whole expected goals thing um, doesn't take into account that either, which, again, troubles me because... I trust people more than I trust statistics. Um, and so, yeah, again, call me old-fashioned or whatever. Uh, that's, 
I'd prefer to trust that instinct than expected goals over um, any kind of uh, statistical analysis. Not over, but certainly in conjunction with. Um, I think it's a good way of judging um, recruitment because uh, players who you're trying to sign uh, need to have consistent to, uh, stats to back up their performances. And if you've got a player who is very inconsistent, then that's the first thing that's going to be uh, looked at with regards to your recruitment department and their recruitment policy and say, well, this guy's unreliable. So we can't, he might be a maverick. He may be you know, a, an incredible player one game in three, but if you can't depend on him three out of three, then it's a risk to sign him. Whereas statistical analysis gives us the opportunity to analyse a player's performances and data over an entire season or indeed multiple seasons before that player is signed. <clears throat> so it has its advantages, it has its negatives as well. Um, but it's one of those things where, as you said, Duncan, I think after four games, it's just a bit tough to call uh, you know, out performances of certain teams and say, well, because XG is good, then they don't deserve to be where they are on the table. Yeah, it's, I think it makes more sense to analyse the games in a whole and look at the way the teams are playing um, and assess issues with that. And if, you're, you know, if you have experience in football, which the, the, the key decision makers have, um, they are generally good at, at judging these things. I, I think there's one point... Um, XG is probably better from a recruitment perspective than it is in terms of calculating these team performance tables in the sense that if you're looking at striker and you want to have a, an analytical measure of how efficient he is at converting chances, then XG probably works quite efficiently in that perspective in that it's saying where has he had his chances in the field of play? Does he put them in the net or not? Um, when you do it on a combined basis at a team level, you run into the issue, one of the issues which I raised, which is actually you can have a team who aren't very efficient at finishing. Therefore, they have a higher XG than their goal return um, because they're not very good. <laughs> um, it's not unlucky necessarily, and, and it shouldn't be unlucky in terms of the way the statistics set up. If the, st if the statistic has efficacy, um, it should actually be judging the quality of finishing. Um, so if a team's uh, actual goal return is consistently below their XG, it probably means they're not very good at finishing. Well, and to give, a, again, uh, an example from real life, Duncan, um, I was involved in a transfer um, a couple of years ago where I was given the analysis report by the club this particular club the buying club that is um on a particular player and i had a mandate for that player um to sell him in england and their statistical analysis report in terms of his consistency of xg and everything else was was excellent it didn't quite match up to his conversion of goal chances created for him but he looked like a decent buy or it didn't include was the fact that the player was entirely unsuited to changing environment uh, into um, in terms of social uh, acclimatization in England and everything else. He's only ever played in one country as well prior to this potential move. Um, I made this point uh, against myself to the club and saying, are you sure 
um, you want to go ahead with this because um, this player, I think, may not be as good as your data analysis team are making out. And they said, no, no, we trust in the data analysis team, so let's just get it, get it going and everything else. Um, that player did sign for said club, and he completely flopped for the reasons that I'd pointed out to the club um, as a possible negative in that transfer. Um, so, uh, it, again, that's a, an example from uh, my career my, and, and in real life about how analysis doesn't always match up to what the player's personality and indeed circumstances are. So I do think there's still room for the human element in terms of scouting, which I think a lot of clubs, especially in the Premier League, have lost sight of with regards to trusting in statistics rather than um, trusting in their scouts and indeed uh, sending, oh my God, this is a radical idea, send your head coach or your manager to go watch the player and meet him and see what he, well, that, see what he thinks. That this is, I mean, this is one of the, the problems here. It's, it's a bit like when Arsene Wenger, um, part big part of his early success was he was the only man tapping into the French market and bringing uh, quality players over to Arsenal uh, at reasonable prices and building a, a strong team. Lo and behold, uh, people noticed and, and enough I won't say every other team in the Premier League tapped into the French market, but enough of them did that that advantage was lost. Um, once, you once you start using analytics to scout and you start using these um, numbers to bring up a list of you know, the, the best chance converters or the, or the guy who runs the most distance, does the most high intensity sprints, everyone has access to that if they have access to the same numbers. Everyone can go through their spreadsheet and say, Ah, well, this player here in Italy, who's uh, got only one year left in his contract, is in the top 10 in Europe in this category. Therefore, we should target him. What the real quality, the, re the way you really win in scouting is, is identifying the player who's going to turn into the one who's in the top 10 uh, in Europe for uh, high-intensity sprints or, more importantly, goal scoring and chance create creation. And the analytics don't give you that. They give you current performance. They don't give you future performance. And the really top scouts, the guys who, who have um, built the reputation for building strong squads and identifying you know, talents like, for example, Kylian Mbappe early and getting them into teams where they can be sold on for huge profits are the ones who see the future potential. And they're not using analytics to do that. They're using their eye to do that. And... Um, and that's a rarer skill and one that some people seem to think is, in, is dispensable in the modern game because you have numbers to make these assessments with. But it's simply not the case that it's dispensable. I do think sometimes, Duncan, just around this particular part uh, of the pod off, that um, managers are, are accepting the findings of the algorithms and the stats team um, with regards to signing players because it gives them a safety net. They can then say if, it, if the sign doesn't work out, they can say, well, we signed them on the basis of a lot of research by our stats guys and it looked like he was going to be a good fit for the team and now he's not. So you can't really blame me for that. Whereas 
10, 15 years ago, if a manager makes a bad signing, that could be the end of his, his job and possibly his job prospects for that matter. So I think there's a crutch to lean on there that some managers like to use. Personally, um, I'd much prefer a manager to come and watch a player I was marketing so that he knew for himself if the player was going to be suitable for his club or suitable for his team and in the position that he wanted them to play before the signing. I do concede that um, football is so um, congested now with fixtures and training schedules and everything else that it's more difficult for managers to make those trips. But I must admit, I feel more comfortable when a, a coach, or at least an assistant coach, comes to um, the player who is on offer uh, to, to watch him play, wherever it is, and then you know have a coffee with him after the game, chat to him, chat to his agent, chat to his family, whatever, and uh, and make a decision based on that personal interaction rather than just the analysis report that's been presented to him, um, which is more and more the way football is going. Now, we always like to have royalty on, on the show, as you guys know, and we have King uh, at True Nina, who asks Duncan, I think, a uh, very, very um, good question, actually, uh, given the comings and goings at Camp Nou uh, this summer. With Champions League to begin next week, do you think Barcelona have improved their team enough to win it? Well... Barcelona should have won the Champions League last year. They were in position to win the Champions League. Uh, they threw it away at Anfield. Um, you would have to calculate that had they got through that game, which they should have got through, that they would in all likelihood have beaten Tottenham in the final. Um, given that Tottenham still remain trophyless, their manager still remains trophyless, um, they had a better squad of players. So what have they done in the summer? They've added... Um, Arguably the best young midfielder in Europe, in Frankie de Jong, um, who scored an exceptional goal um, against Germany midweek um, in Netherlands' uh, European qualifying game against the Germans in Germany. And they've added um, the best forward from one of the rivals, Atletico Madrid, and Antoine Griezmann. Um, and they've avoided uh, signing Neymar. Um, which I think is for their benefit, um, that, that could actually have handicapped them. They also, and this is a more questionable one because he had a bad injury last season, they signed Junior Firpo from Real Betis, who is um, one of the, well, regarded as one of the top young left-backs in the game, was on Manchester City's recruitment list before his injury. If he recovers properly, also um, strong addition to the squad. So all things being equal, they should be better than they were last year. I think they've got a better squad than they did last year. Um, therefore, and you know, with Champions League, it's very hard to predict winners. It's always hard to predict winners because it comes down always to fine margins, um, quite often to a refereeing decision. Now we've got VAR decisions to calculate into that. Um, or an injury, um, or a fortunate break in a game. Um, you know, Ajax, Frankie de Jong really should have made the final of the Champions League, and I think would have been stronger opponents for either Liverpool or Barcelona if they got there, but they go out having been behind for, what, 15 seconds 
of the, their semi-final. Um, so I, th I think it's very hard to predict who will be the eventual winners because you have the, the best teams in Europe um, and the most exciting, interesting, tactically complex football you get in, in the world. But um, are they good enough to win it? Well, they were good enough to win it last year. I think they're stronger from a personnel basis. So yes, I think they are good enough to win it this year. I'd agree with you on that, Duncan. I would say that in the last couple of seasons, though, um, what I've noticed about Barcelona is perhaps being too desperate to win the Champions League. There is a, comes a time in a, in a team's cycle of success where having achieved so much, um, and in Barcelona's case, you know, numerous La Liga titles um, and Spanish Super Cup, etc., etc., that the the real prize is the one that which they've obviously not won for the longest amount of time, and that obviously is the Champions League trophy. And when Messi said at the la beginning of last season that his aim was to bring that trophy back to Camp Nou, and it was their destiny to do so, it just seemed a little bit over the top and a little bit desperate, and then. Of course, that puts more pressure when your captain and talisman says, this is what we need to do, this is what I want us to do. Then it's almost like you, you try too hard, you play more within yourself because you're trying to keep the dream alive rather than trying to make it real. And I felt that's what happened to Barcelona, not just last season, but the season prior as well. And um, they weren't playing with the freedom or indeed the ability that they possess. Instead, they were playing a little bit within themselves. Um, I think scared is maybe, well, maybe it's too uh, much to say they were scared, but they were scared of going out rather than, um, as I say, determined to go through. Uh, I think that was holding them back because there's no doubt if Barcelona play to their potential and to their innate quality, then they are a better team than anyone else in the Champions League. So you've got to ask yourself, well, what is the problem? Why are they not succeeding in fulfilling that um, ambition of, of uh, winning the Champions League again? And I, I do think there's a, a mental issue with this team. Now, they've recruited well, they're stronger, although they've not had to, you know, 100% uh, success at the start of their season. Um, but those teething problems will iron themselves out. I expect them to cruise beyond the group stage and into, you know, quarter semi-final stage. But again, that's where questions will be asked. And I think unless that mentality changes that I've described, then they will again be at risk of being eliminated ahead of the final rather than being uh, favourites to win the competition overall. Uh, and that is a, is a problem which the coach has to overcome, which he was unable to overcome last season. But he needs to address it and he needs to give his players a different mental approach to the knockout stages if they are going to fulfil the potential of being European champions once again. And I think it's going to be fascinating to watch them once they get out of the group stage and into the knockout phase again and see how they play. Because, if they, as I said, if they play with freedom, with that liberty that you know thrills everyone when they, they are attacking at will, then yes, you know, they're odds on to win it. But I just can't see that right now. 
and it's something which has to be addressed and overcome before I think we can truly say that Barcelona are the favourites and of course they're bookmakers' favourites but I just don't see them being favourites right now. Well, if it's about being scared then you'd have to say that uh, signing your, your good friend Antoine Scaredy Cat Griezmann Scaredy Cat <laughs> Uh, indeed, indeed. Well, he scores. He's, he's a scorer of great goals, but is he a scorer of important goals? Well, he has been for Atletico. Certainly has been for the France national team. Let's see him step up and get out of the scaredy shah shadow that's been cast <laughs> upon him by the Transfer Window podcast. Um, and speaking, indeed, of Champions League. Uh, our last question in today's podcast comes from Miss Blue Moon, or Mooney, she sometimes likes to be called, and she asks Duncan, do you think a reasonably long expulsion from the Champions League by UEFA, obviously, for Manchester City, would serve to create friction between City fans and the club's owners? Now, we should obviously explicate that, and that would be obviously under the circumstances where City were... Uh, has a Champions League ban imposed for um, uh, financial fair play uh, and obviously breaking the regulations of that, which uh, Champions League ban would be the obvious punishment. Um, and of course, the fans might hold the owners accountable for their own for their actions in um, going beyond the regulations of financial fair play. Now, interesting because, as we both know, Duncan City fans are very anti-UEFA after um, other sanctions were inflicted on the club for similar offences. They turn their backs and boo the Champions League anthem. Um, they don't even fill the Etihad Stadium on certain occasions when Champions League fixtures are played. So do we really think it's, it's realistic that fans will turn against the Mansour al-Mubarak regime should they get a Champions League ban? Well, it's always difficult to talk about fans um, because you will have in, you're obviously going to have individual fans with differing opinions, um, and there have been Manchester City fans who've been vocal um, in complaining about the current ownership. They're in a minority, um, but there will be those fans, and I, I would expect certain fans, um, if Manchester City are banned by UEFA, um, they're would accept that it was Abu Dhabi's responsibility that they'd been banned from the competition and would be critical of Abu Dhabi because of it. However, I don't see that being the majority of fans for the reasons you've identified. Um, they are, uh, as a group, um, on average, very much anti-UEFA. They feel um, UEFA has been biased against them and victimised the club and um, the narrative around this investigation and the um, sanctioning of Manchester City is that it would be unfair on the club and it would be um, a targeting of the club um, and therefore I think the, the defence lines are, you know, they're already drawn. Um, so I think you just look through the history of this when when these stories were coming out that UEFA were investigating. Um, uh, something we talked about in the transfer window podcast very early last season. We, 
we said this is serious and there is pressure from other European clubs that they'd be banned on this occasion, you would get you know, a chorus of responses, when's it actually happening? You, you say this is going to happen, but UEFA haven't announced anything. And lo and behold, a few months down the line, UEFA announced it. Um, now it's gone further, now it's at the adjudicatory chamber stage. And if anything, I think the resistance has grown stronger. So I don't think this would be damaging um, to Abu Dhabi and the relationship with the fans. And I think if you go and look at Khaldun Al-Mubarak's end-of-season interview, um, where he was specifically referring to um, La Liga president Javier Tabas, um, uh, complaining about Tabas bringing ethnicity into the discussion when actually Khaldun Al-Mubarak was the first person to bring ethnicity into the discussion. Uh, he was the one who was talking about it. Um, Tebas hadn't. Um, where you have, you know, lots of discussion of UEFA sanctioning and uh, what their transfer policy had been, and him arguing that they didn't hadn't broken transfer records. I think it's very hard not to see that as an attempt to um, provide the fans with ammunition um, to support the club and Abu Dhabi's line of defence um, and present them as victims in, in this um, investigation into, let's remember, is one of rule-breaking, um, one of competition rule-breaking, of which we have seen documentary evidence, substantial documentary evidence. But the line that's come out, the defence has been, we're being victimised here, this is being unfair. If, even if we are done for financial fair regulations, those regulations were brought in specifically to target Manchester City, which, of course, um, wasn't the explicit um, manner in which they were introduced. They were introduced to uh, reduce um, indebtedness in football and to try and uh, make football clubs more stable. Um, it was never set up uh, to be specifically target nation-state-owned clubs like Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain, but these are the defence lines I think they've been accepted by the majority of Manchester City fans. So I don't think this will um, damage the relationship with Abu Dhabi if they are, in fact, banned for the Champions League from a season, for a season or two. I'd agree with you, Duncan. I don't think there's anything going to get between those fans who um, quite regularly tweet as a picture of the City badge saying, we are Man City, we do what we want. Um, and uh, it is ironic think, though, of course, that the man who um, put together and indeed was the founder of financial fair play rules, one Michel Platini, uh, himself fell foul of financial fair play in his expulsion from football. Um, on that note, we'll move on to what <laughs> for men. Sorry, Duncan. No, I was just laughing. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Unfortunately, that is the case. Uh, many, many of you might have seen... Um, FIFA president uh, Gianni Fantino um, walking alongside someone in Washington yesterday, both of them laughing about breaking the rules so that uh, said person could get two more years on his term to oversee a World Cup in the USA, when in fact no vote has yet been taken. Uh, interesting that. Uh, so let's see, how, let's see how that one works out. Uh, for many of you, the highlight of the Transfer Window podcast week is the Donkey Awards, and indeed it is for us as well. And... Um, 
we're going to visit a very old friend of ours, and that's uh, Monsieur Asin Wenger, um, who in his time, it has to be said, Duncan, and certainly you and I, uh, in our time, uh, working with Monsieur Wenger uh, at Arsenal, uh, probably didn't sign the best 11 players in the world that could make in a team. Uh, and this week, he said his biggest regret was not signing Leo Messi. But we could add to that Yaya Turi, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Um, there's so many players that Arsene had on trial. Um, Cristiano Colin, Ronaldo. Cristiano Ronaldo. And, and never signed. And yet he has got no shame in saying, I regret that I didn't sign this, this player. When, uh, in fact, he clearly does. Um, I suspect if uh, Arsene Wenger was in the Cavern Club in 1960 when a band called The Beatles were playing there uh, and was offered a chance to sign them as a record industry recruitment guy, he would have won and said, no, I don't think they're quite good enough. <laughs> so Arsene Wenger, the man who turned down The Beatles, uh, is now Arsene Wenger, the award of the donkey this week for his biggest, the biggest regret in football. Now, let me just tear open the uh, not-so-golden vote this week. Arson himself may say it is more a couleur de merde. Um, first nomination, Duncan. Big Sam Allardyce. Greatest regret, not being given the opportunity to manage Real Madrid, when, of course, he famously, famously said, if my name was Sam Allardyceo, I'm sure I would be on the wanted list of said great club in the Liga. Second nomination, the one and only Steven Gerrard, now manager of Rangers FC in Glasgow, but of course, Liverpool legend. The man who, despite, let's just say, he went all the way up the garden gate. They didn't even play Chappie. The door was open. He could have signed for Jose Mourinho and Chelsea in 2005. And lo and behold, if he had, he would have had that one elusive medal in his collection, which would have been, of course, a Premier League winner's medal of 05-06 with Chelsea. Turned it down. Duncan's got some shirt-burning, um, shirt that is, by the way, uh, tales to regale on the uh, on this nomination. And, of course, another old friend and old favourite of ours is Alexis Sanchez, a man whose greatest regret is not to have first taken Humber and Atom to Manchester to see what they thought about his move to Manchester United. Went on a few dog walks, see if they like it, decide whether or not it's going to be, you know, something which they could do together. Um, and instead, you know, he ends up into Milan, where, of course, there are great walks on Lake, uh, Lake Como. So fair play to him. Duncan, those three nominations for you this week. Who would be the winner of this week's A Donkey Award? Well, um, Alexis Sanchez, always a, a strong candidate. And um, I, I do know that he uh, was very annoyed with his agent uh, during his time at Manchester United, blaming his agent for um, convincing him to take more money at Manchester United that had been off on offer at Manchester City. Um, and obviously for not sorting out atom numbers and dog walking duties and, and, and areas in before uh, deciding on that move. Um, I think Steven Gerrard, I think, uh, yes, that, that regret that he was, uh, he was scared um, by the burning of plastic shirts 
into uh, remaining at Anfield rather than uh, taking the opportunity to, to go and win the Premier League title down south um, was a big one. But I think Sam Allardyce has to win this um, because I understand it's also Florentino Perez's greatest regret in football that he didn't take Sam Allardyce at the height of his powers and order pints of Rioja all round at Santiago Bernabeu. <laughs> Surely Roberto del Duero, a much much finer tempranillo, Duncan, than just your ordinary hawker for the man who is Alardicio. Well, we are talking Sam Allardyce, yeah. Okay, so El Gordo Samson, as he would be known <laughs> in Spain. <laughs> uh, he wins this week's Duncan. Duncan, Duncan, Dunky, Dunky Award. Sensational. Big Sam, I think that might be the second time he's won it, actually, which would be great if it is. Because uh, we've yet to have a hat trick of Big Sam, much as um, the Holy Grail of winning three Champions Leagues has eluded Big Sam. He may well yet get three donkeys, in which case his career will be complete, even without being appointed to Real Madrid. Well, that's it for this week, guys. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed the podcast and indeed um, enjoyed the answers to your questions. We welcome them on every single week if you get them into us early better chance for you guys to have your question answered so for instance next week get them into us by monday or certainly tuesday because uh, we record this on wednesdays and uh, we will hopefully be able to get your question answered as well um the debate does not end with the end of the podcast of course it, and it completely begins and becomes open to you on twitter and you can uh, keep that going with um, contacting us through at Transfer Podcast uh, or at Duncan Castles or at Garbo SJ. And as you know, we are very, very happy to uh, respond and indeed interact with you guys on all of your queries, questions and issues on things that have been raised in the podcast and things that haven't even. Um, so give that a go, see what you think. As always, and as you know, um, if you give uh, us a five-star review on iTunes, then it expands the community, keeps things lively and indeed developing, and that means that we can reach a greater audience and, of course, bring you even more quality podcasts as we go on. We'll be back on Friday to fulfil all your podcast needs. Until then, we will see you for the transfer window, and it just leads me to say thank you for listening. <laughs>